My name is Jay Watts from Merely Human Ministries. This is the Human Things Podcast, the Human Things Podcast 2.0. Uh, we had started podcasts years ago, and then we stopped. We stopped for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons I started stopped was because I wasn't really fond of the online culture at the time. I didn't like it. It was not good for me. This isn't a condemnation of the online culture as a whole. It was not good for me. It was not healthy for me. There were a lot of aspects, both that I was worried about in the sense of what I would call performative ministry, where I, I felt pressure to act like I was doing ministry. When I knew I was doing ministry, I was doing important work with organizations behind the scenes, not always visible for people in the general public to see. I was doing talks on the road, which were not being recorded or seen online. There were, I was writing for other organizations and helping study or teach or all of these things that I was doing. And then in addition to that, there was an element where I felt like there was a performative nature of what was going on online. And also online was very toxic at the time. It, it's, it's, I think this is funny. I mean, I think things are funny though that people don't think are necessarily funny. There was a guy on Facebook. I, I'm, ten, I'm tempted to call him a Facebook friend, but I know the guy. We've had dinner a couple of times. I've been around him. I wouldn't say we're friends, but we're Facebook friends. And he made a post the other day where he quoted someone saying that you never get in trouble for the things you didn't say something along those lines. Right? He has, obviously he's trying to encourage people to watch what they say because you don't get in trouble for the things that you don't say. One of the reasons I got offline was because I started to get in trouble for the things I wasn't saying. I was getting phone calls from people on all sides asking me to talk about things that I didn't want to talk about and to get involved in things that I didn't want to get involved with. And this isn't because I didn't think they were morally important issues. It was because I'm not an expert on them. If you've ever been to a Q and a, where I have spoken and somebody asked in the audience a question that's out of my wheelhouse, you know me. I'm honest about it. I tell them, I'm not honest. I did this at a school. I did a, a, a tour of universities in Alabama in the fall. And at one of them, I really frustrated an audience member who stood up and asked me a question. And I told them, I'm not going to answer that from the stage because I'm not an expert on it. If you want to talk to me about it when I get off the stage, that's fine. But there's a power to platforms that makes people believe that you have an authority that you don't have. And if I lose sight of the idea that I exist to talk about very specific things, that I believe that God called me to talk about very specific things, then it can become an abuse of the platform that God has given me. So I don't answer everything that people ask me. As a matter of fact, oftentimes I tell them, I'm just not going to answer that. Or at least I'm not going to answer it from this platform. You can talk to me as Jay Watts, just fellow to fellow, man to man, guy to gal, however you want to process that but it won't be from this place where I speak. And so as people were asking me to speak into areas where I just wasn't an authority and were getting angry at me and I lost friendships over it, which was painful, I stepped back. I went to the ministry and said, let's just do the good work that we do that people can't see. Let's see if God can bless our ministry and our work through there, through there, through there. And let's see how it goes. And God blessed us. So why come back? because it's working just fine without this aspect of it. As I mentioned, I did tours through universities in the fall, not just in Alabama. I worked with university students all over the country. And one of the things that came up a lot is I had conversations, and I love, I love talking to students. I love it. It's my favorite thing to do. And when I get done doing a presentation, I get done with a Q&A, I like to hang out and talk for as long as people want to talk. And during those conversations, those young people told me, they wanted more of this. They asked me to produce material that would be like talking to me as much as possible. They said, we are just enjoying this conversation with you. So Human Things 2.0, this next iteration that we're beginning, 
That's what we're endeavoring to do. It's an endeavor to have a conversation like those conversations I have after I speak. And I'll be inviting friends in. Today, we're going to be talking about rights. And Alicia Wood from C.S. Lewis Society will be joining us later to carry on the conversation as we discuss a specific kind of argument that's come up in the abortion dialogue. Starting, not, And it's a, it's a new version of an old argument. And, and I've read it, and we'll be talking about that more specifically later. But everything that we're doing in all of this, the goal will be to be real uh, and also to, in some way or another, bring that conversations that we have afterwards. That's the important part to me. Because that's when ministry, I think, is at its best, is when human beings are sitting there and talking to each other. I know online people are capable of being cruel to each other in a way that I just can't fathom or understand. But some of those same people who are capable of, of, capable of, of cruelty online, they're not as capable of it when they're standing right in front of you and you have the opportunity to chat with them. So as much as we possibly can, Human Things is an endeavor to recreate the experience of chatting with me. I, I will warn you that that means that there may be times when I talk about really stupid things. Uh, I'm going to admit, you know, this when I was going through today and in the first episode that we were getting to it this morning, and I was thinking about intro stuff, I actually got distracted by a really stupid question. And, and I couldn't get my mind, uh, JD just described, would you say a greyhound on a treadmill? Yeah, it, it's out of control sometimes in my head. And, and, and wrestling what's going on between my ears can be difficult. And, and as I was trying to be professional, and I was trying to be serious, because I want to be both of those things in this podcast, I was also, for some reason or other, distracted by the question of, does it make sense to have running zombies? Uh, because it doesn't make any sense to me to have running zombies. And we'll talk about that some other time, maybe, as we talk about it. There's a lot, actually, to go into. That's a much deeper conversation than you might think. Because to run, Max Brooks, in his books on zombies, does not have running zombies. But running zombies are very popular now in movies. He he rejects the idea of running zombies because running requires intention. Right, You have to decide to run to speed up your pace. I'm getting off topic, obviously, as we get onto the zombie thing, but there's even more to it than that because biologically, I, I've watched people try to run when their muscles are working well and it doesn't work that well. So I'm trying to figure out how zombies can just be world-class sprinters all the time without having any kind of muscle fatigue. These are the kind of questions that obsess me when I'm trying to be serious about things. So let's get to more serious things. Let's get off of zombies running and get to more serious things. Cue the video. Let's, 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 let's launch our conversation about rights. America is a promise. It is a promise of freedom and liberty. Not for some, but for all. A promise we made in the Declaration of Independence. That we are each endowed with the right to liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Be clear, these rights were not bestowed upon us. They belong to us as Americans. And it is that freedom and liberty that enabled generations of Americans to chart their own course and decide their own future with, yes, ambition and aspiration. 
Therein lies the strength of our nation. And since our founding, we have then been on a march forward to fully realize our promise to complete the unfinished work to secure freedom and liberty for all. Yeah, uh, that's Vice President Kamala Harris. I want to pronounce that correctly. That's right, Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris, speaking at a 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade event where she is talking about not conferred rights, but rights to which all human beings are endowed by the creator, which she didn't include from the Declaration of Independence. And she talks about liberty and the right to pursue happiness. It's interesting, obviously, and this has been brought up by a lot of different people, that she has left off life in that. And that's what I want to talk about. But I want to talk about rights as well, because it's important when you, when we're evaluating the seriousness of leaving life off that. We've talked about the Declaration of Independence. We are told that we are all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among those rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if you were talking about the issue of abortion on the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, and you start off by quoting the Declaration of Independence, and you're a lawyer and the vice president of the United States, and you leave life off, we can only assume that you did that on purpose because you're not stupid. It's not like you don't know what the Declaration of Independence is. It's not like you didn't have... A, a whole education built around understanding law. And she understands also very well then the difference between, because she makes a point of saying these were not given, they're not conferred. There's different kind of rights. One thing in the United States we're terrible about is talking about rights. Most of the conversation about rights is total nonsense. People have no idea what they're talking about. So let's talk about two broad categories of rights that we're getting into at this moment. One of them would be considered natural rights. And that's what we talk about in the Declaration of Independence. When the framers, the writers of the Declaration of Independence, the signers, the original colonists, the people who, who brought this into existence, this experiment of the United States of America did this, the Declaration of Independence is basically a justification for treason. They were committing treason against the sovereign nation who ruled over them, and they gave a moral justification for that because the sovereign ruler believed that they were chosen by God and that they were allowed certain indulgences because they were more important. And, and the way the society was built was the closer you were to that sovereign and the closer you were in that ruling class, the more important that you were. There's interesting books that you read, sometimes completely separated from the idea of, of rights and moral philosophy, where you read in history what was going on and the kind of abuses that were happening, not just in the colonies, but even back in England, to the people who had no fair trial system, no jury of their peers, no no rights, that there was a the way that they were punished was all over the place. In Richard Zach's book, The Pirate Hunter, he talks about how the ruling class it was it was the whim of whoever it was who wanted to punish you at the moment to the extent to which you could be punished, and that the 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 people who were working, the common people, could be punished severely for very small infractions. And you see this level of injustice. And so the colonists, as they frame the Declaration of Independence, are rejecting this idea 
of a sovereign ruler who is special and saying there is no one special and our rights don't come from you. They come from God. And every single one of us are created equal. All of us, all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And what, and so when you read the whole declaration of independence, if you get past the beginning and go on and read what they're saying, what they're, the, the argument that's being made is that legitimate government exists to protect rights that we have by virtue of what we are, which is human beings. As human beings, I have the right to life. I have the right to liberty. I have the right to pursuit of happiness, which is the weirdest of the three because originally it was property. And then the pursuit of happiness, even as they would have understood it, would not have been hedonistic or, or in the sense of just the pursuit of pleasure. But happiness at some point or another would be tied into pursuing human flourishing, which is a higher ideal than just pursuing pleasure. They would have been pursuing human flourishing. So this idea that there was the framers of the Declaration of Independence was offering was we have rights that the government doesn't give us, and they are rights by virtue of what we are. And most preeminent among those would be the right to life. I have a quote here from uh, my friend Mike Adams, who is no longer with us, from his debate with Dr. Parker, Dr. Willie Parker, who was the abortionist, in Mississippi, where the Dobbs decision comes from, it centers around uh, Willie Parker's abortion facility. And at this debate, Dr. Adams and Willie Parker were talking about personhood. And, and, and Mike Adams responds, he says, Dr. Parker talks about personhood and asks the question as to when does a human, when does a woman lose her personhood? At what point does that happen? Here he is actually trying to set up a situation involving competing rights between women and between the unborn. He has done this in the past, saying that a fetus cannot be more important than women who are carrying it. That is absolutely correct. They have equal rights, and that includes the right to life. And here is the thing that I think is most important about what he said, because it goes back to why would the vice president leave life out? Because she's trying to set up a place where we're giving preeminence to liberty and preeminence to the pursuit of happiness, and we're setting aside any discussion of the right to life because it would hurt her case in a discussion of Roe v. Wade, but you cannot pit, Mike Adams said, the right to life against the right to liberty or against the pursuit of happiness. Why? Because there is no moral right to intentionally kill an innocent human being, even if it makes you freer, even if it makes you happier. Because if we did that, that would negate all rights for everyone including the right to life itself. What my friend Mike Adams understood was that without the right to life, all other rights are ridiculous. Because if I can't be alive, I can't enjoy those others. I, I, I did a thought experiment on a series that I started online. I'm terrible, by the way, about starting blog series and not finishing them. So I'm getting back to some of the ones that I started and I'm not finishing. It's not, it's not because I lack the ability to follow through. It's because I'm busy and I get really excited about something. And then people call me and ask me to get involved. But one of them was try to imagine if you wake up one day and you know nothing about the morality of the world, you know, nothing about how human interactions exist. And we have to build from there sort of a Cartesian skepticism, right? And we have to build from there some way of interacting with other human beings. The first thing that we would know, hopefully the first thing that we would come to learn through our human interactions 
is that we have to restrain ourselves, that other people place obligations and duties on us by their right to exist. If I have a right to exist and they have a right to exist, uh, Kate Greasley, a pro-choice philosopher and legal scholar at Oxford University, I believe, right now she says, these are neg- she talks about those negative duties, right? We have negative duties to one another. I have a responsibility and duty not to do things to you. And first and foremost among those negative duties is to not kill you. You have a right to continue to live. I have a negative duty or negative responsibility to withhold an action against you. And I think there, what Mike is getting to when he talks about that idea of there is no more right to intentionally kill an innocent human being, even if it makes you freer, that we can't place these foundational rights of what it means to be a human being against one another. And so to leave life out puts you in a weird position because all other rights are derivative of being alive. I mean, the first thing we would have to say is life is good. Why is it good? Because I can't even argue the good of life if I'm not alive and here to do so. And so liberty exists by virtue of being alive and the pursuit of happiness and human flourishing. These exist by virtue of being alive. And if we don't have a right to be alive, to continue to exist, if I have to worry that you're going to kill me at any given moment, then those other rights are meaningless because they're not real. So when we argue natural rights, we argue the kind of rights you have by virtue of what you are. You don't have a right to drive a car in this way. Not a pre-legal, pre-constitutional right. The government can give you a right to drive a car and take it away. You only have a right to drive a car because the government says, we're going to license you to be able to use the roads. And if you don't handle that privilege well, we'll take it away from you. And you can't say well, that's unjust. You took away my right. I have a natural right to drive. Well, human beings have a natural right to drive cars because that would imply that a, you know, as, a, as a living being, long before cars ever existed, we had this right that existed to be able to drive them on freeways that didn't exist with technology that doesn't exist and all of these things. No, those are things that are given to you by the government, but a right to life is not given to you by the government. The government's job is to protect it, to honor it. It doesn't give it to you. It existed before the government. It is more important than the government. Your right to life is more important than the government, more important, your liberty is more important than the government, and a government that violates it, the Declaration of Independence is saying as strongly as possible, if they violate those rights, then they are not a legitimate government, and you have the justification for treason and to, sh- to, to, to shove that government off and start something new that will honor those rights. So for her to leave it out as a lawyer is 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 is... is, is obviously intentional. She knew exactly what she was doing. And, and, and it puts us in a position there where we have to start to understand the, the conversation that we're having now in the world about abortion. When the other side, in order to make their case, has to take the founding documents of the United States, the founding principle. And by the way, I agree with everything she said after she left life off the list. Everything she said is right. I've actually have a talk that I give and gave it one of the universities that we discussed earlier where I, I frame all men are created equal and also the idea that we ought to be to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I, I make the case, hopefully, that we have been at our best throughout human history when we are trying to expand our neighborhood and when we are trying to expand our definitions of all men. At the time the Declaration of Independence was written, there were people that were left out of the category of all men created equal, but they knew it as they were writing it and the fights were begun at that moment. As soon as they penned it and signed it, 
Slavery was going to be an issue we were going to have to deal with. Women's suffrage was going to be an issue we were going to have to deal with. Equal rights was going to have to be something we are going to have to deal with. All of this was something that was going to be wrestled with and dealt with. How we dealt with immigration. All of these things was something that was going to be dealt with because we made a declaration of principle of human rights that exist outside, pre-legal, pre-governmental. Every great thing we've done in the United States has been because people have stood up and said, we shouldn't treat other human beings like that. All men are created equal. And that category of human life is not being treated as equal. Those human beings are being left out right now. Let's pull them in as all men and recognize that they have the same rights that the rest of us do. That's when we're at our very best. So I agree with everything she said after that. It's just now wrestling with this idea though, that our right to life comes first. It's the preeminent right because all of those other rights that we would have by virtue of what we are require ourselves to be alive to enjoy them. And all human flourishing, all human goods depend on our being alive to enjoy them. So the right to life comes first and it can't be omitted from that list. And other rights are just different. Before we get to Alicia, who's going to be joining us soon, I'll share a, a brief story. I was speaking in Chicago and a, and a young man stood up and he said, what if I reject all of these things? All this conversation of rights and human beings. What if I just think there's no such thing as right and wrong and that all rights are given to us by the government? That there is no difference between the right to drive and your right to life. The wrong of, of, of driving is, is, is without a license is the same as murdering another human being in the sense that neither one of them have anything to do with objective morality. They're social contracts. They're things that we decided as a society. They're things that we just, we, we, this would be best. This is the way that we ought to operate. You shouldn't kill each other because I don't want to be killed and because it'd be difficult for us to run a government or a society if we were all killing each other all the time. There's no such thing as objective right and wrongs. There's no creator endowing you with rights. You have no right to life, but we just decide. So he said, what if that's the way I see the world? What if I reject the idea of natural rights or rights that you have by virtue of what you are and I embrace legal rights and a constitution is what gives you those rights and you have no rights outside of that? Well, there's a lot that actually happens as a result of that. He said, for you right now, an interesting byproduct of that is that your right if that is the case, if that's the state of affairs, then I am wrong in the sense, factually wrong when I say that human beings ought to be treated with dignity and respect, but it's not wrong for me to try to convince people of that. So you're right in the say that I am factually wrong that human beings ought to be treated with dignity and respect. And so you're right in that sense that abortion should be legal and fine because there's nothing objectively wrong happening because the concept of objective morality doesn't exist. So, but the problem that you have then is it's equally true that it's not wrong for me to try to convince everybody that abortion is wrong and then to restrict the practice. You see, in order for you to say that abortion is a right that women must have and for that to be a meaningful statement, if they don't have it, there has to be objective moral reasons for abortion to be something that women have the right to have access to. Because otherwise you're just saying they have a legal right or don't have a legal right. In the same way that I have a legal right to drive or not have a legal right to drive, I don't have a real right. It was just given to me by the government. If the government takes it, they're not treating me unjustly because it was never mine to begin with. It was just something that was given to me. So, so if I convince enough people to restrict access to abortion, even if I'm factually wrong that abortion is objectively wrong, there's nothing wrong with me doing that because even that's not objectively wrong. 
you lose both the ability to demand people give abortion where it isn't because there's no such thing as injustice, not real injustice. Not no, there's no violation of objective morality. You can't go to a government and say, I ought to have the right to abortion when, so, uh, when I don't have a right to abortion. You want to give it to me when you haven't given it to me because to withhold it from me is unjust because you don't believe in any concepts of justice or objective morality. You have to have natural rights in order to argue that you're unjustly being denied a right to an abortion. But then now we have to get back into the realm of what rights come first your right to live your life in any way that you want or another human being's right to continue to live without you destroying them without justification. You may gain the ability to say he's wrong on this day for saying that abortion is wrong because I I reject the concept of objective morality altogether. But then you lose any ability to say that the withholding of abortion is unjust or that my arguing against women's access to abortion is unjust because those concepts have been thrown out as you've embraced a view that you think gives you the leg up. It is vital that we have concepts of objective morality and natural rights. And even though it's difficult to understand, I don't fully understand what we're talking about all the time when we say that somebody has a right to life. I don't understand what it means we shouldn't do these things to each other. I have to wrestle with these ideas, but there's a tension in the world that we have to wrestle with as well. One is the sense or belief that there are things that we can do to one another that are wrong. And then when we do those things, we violate someone's basic human rights. If I kill you, I have violated your rights. If I rape you, I have violated your rights. If I abuse you, steal from you, all of these things, take your possession, I'm violating your rights as a human being, your basic right to live and to pursue happiness and to live free. All of these things are being taken from you by me and I shouldn't do that. To do that would be wrong. This tension that I felt as an atheist, that there was no moral right and wrong. The universe was an accident. And yet all around me, there were things that I intuitively understood were wrong was something that I wrestled with that drew me towards God. And then after I came to know God, I started to wrestle with what did I mean? Because suddenly I was in a world I didn't understand. There were, there were things that I reasoned through that helped me to find in myself in a relationship with God. But when I got there, one of the things that I have wrestled with from then until now is what do we mean when we say it's wrong to destroy each other, to hurt each other, to deny each other certain freedoms? How do we understand that? And how do we argue that in public? Because that's what's going on now. And as we lead to Alicia coming in to join us in a moment here, we're going to be talking about an article where an absolute right to control our body, particularly the bodies of people, this is how they talk about it, who can get pregnant. And we'll discuss that more. As, they, as, as their argument moves away from the idea that this is a women's issue and moves into the idea that it's an impregnatable people issue, as they start to say women or impregnatable people have an absolute right to not be pregnant, an absolute right to exist in a certain state, and that that right supersedes all other rights, even the right to life of the human life that they're destroying. As we wrestle with what does it mean to say that we have a right outside of rights that are given to us by the government, a right that makes justice claims and obligation and duty claims on other people. So that's what we're going to get into next as we talk about this article by Charlotte Shane in Harper's, it talks about an absolute right to not be pregnant.
All right, we're going to, today we're welcoming the first guest. You are the first guest ever. <laughs> oh boy. On the first Human Things video podcast 2.0, whatever the production is that we're doing here. Alicia Wood from C.S. Lewis Society is joining us. Uh, again, just to give you some background, yeah. prior to you getting here, we've been talk I've been talking about natural rights. We talked about uh, Vice President Harris leaving the, the right to life off mm -hmm. of her discussion of the Declaration of Independence, the, some different, some discussion about conferred rights or legal rights versus the rights that we have by virtue of what we are. Uh, and I brought Alicia in because the idea is that we were trying to replicate conversations that we've had with students. The request that we had from students was that they like talking after the events more than they like the events almost. Oh, uh, so, yeah, sure. So, so it was like, they want that. They yep. said, give us more of this kind of conversation. Great. Uh, and so that's the whole point of human things. And so Great. that's why we brought you in as a, just tell them about your all around brilliance. Me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> just yeah, well, no. brilliance. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's an intro. Uh, <laughs> well, um, I have been an apologist now for goodness, nine and nine or so years, Christian apologist. And basically that means that I love helping people on their journey to just discover who God is and just, the questions that they ask are oftentimes valid questions. The objections they have to Christianity are oftentimes yeah. valid. And how can I help somebody on this journey to understanding why I believe the Christian faith is true? And there's so many different ways that you can do that, you know, philosophy and evidential approaches and um, archaeological or history, whatever it might be. But regardless, I think one thing I've learned is that everybody's on the journey. And in this culture, you know, you can't talk about religion or politics. So people are always afraid to ask somebody <laughs> yeah. and or they've had a bad church experience. A lot of people have bad church experiences. Yeah. So they're afraid to talk to somebody. And I get to come in and say, ask me whatever you want. I'm not easily offended. Just go for it. And so it's been pretty fun. You know, it's interesting going back to the people are not supposed to talk about religion or politics. I was at my my son's youth group one time and they, and they were discussing in their small group that the, some some serious subjects came up. Yeah. And the teachers had told them, don't talk. The Sunday school teachers, small group teachers, leaders, whatever you want to call them. They said, no, we shouldn't talk about those things. And so he came home and he was telling me, I said, well, actually, this is exactly the place we should be talking mm -hmm. about those things, yeah. right? I mean, if there's anybody that should yeah. be taking the most serious subjects on, it should be the church and, exactly. and the body of Christ. So if you don't talk about the important things, what's left to talk about? Exactly. Movies? Right. And, and, and he actually said, right. they talk about movies all the time. That's all they talk about. Because... It eliminated the important subjects, and yeah. so they were forced to try to find serious things in trivial forms of communication. And so, yeah, I agree yeah. with you 100%. Okay, so what I asked you to join me in conversation about is an article written by Charlotte Shane. It was first published in Harper's Magazine in October. Uh, why I wanted another view of this or, or another eye looking at this article was because Charlotte Shane has given us what I think is probably the best example of the argument that she offers. And for those joining us, the, the argument that she offers is a, an aggressive form of a bodily autonomy argument. Now, bodily autonomy arguments have, have been around for a long time, but this one that, that she is bringing forth now in the post-Roe world is born out of an idea that we've seen, and we knew about this, for, by the way, those of us who have dealt with the issue of Roe v. Wade for years knew that people who advocated for their side weren't happy with the road decision. And one of the reasons they weren't happy with it was because the decision wasn't grounded in a woman's right. It was grounded in a medical privacy point. And so the decision talks about doctors have the right to perform medical procedures 
as a, back, as a matter of medical privacy. And, and, and it leaves this absolute right of women out of it. It, it. it dances around a lot of the nature of the fetus, the doctor's right to operate in privacy. And, 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 and so that was never something that set well with a particular group of people. So now that Roe's gone, there are some people that are trying to recast the narrative of this conversation. And, and in doing so, Charlotte Shane presents us with an aggressive bodily autonomy argument. What she says is there is no part of her body that remains unaffected if she becomes pregnant, that it is an, it is an aggressive invasion of her body and every system of her body is impacted by this pregnancy. And because of that, and she goes, we'll talk about this a little more. She, she actually, and others I've read in New York Times reject the idea of this being women's issue now. And they're talking about it as an impregnatable person's issue because they're opening themselves up to be more inclusive of the trans community. And, and uh, we'll get into the, some of that too. Where Charlotte Shane actually accuses the pro-life side of yeah. wanting to cast this yeah. as a women's issue because we're trying to force femininity or uh, on pregnancy. But what she says is anyone who can be pregnant has the absolute right mm -hmm. to not be pregnant. And she says this right is a good that must be pursued all the way up until birth, meaning that at any time a person who is pregnant decides they don't want to be pregnant, right. they have an absolute right to get into that state of not being pregnant, whatever that means. And, and so for her, the life of the baby, the life of the unborn, the fetus is completely immaterial because of the invasive nature of pregnancy on the body. Uh, so that's where we're starting off. What are your thoughts yeah. going into this? Well, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, and, yes. and I know we'll unpack it. But, I mean, there, there is some level in which I, her very first statement of I've never wanted to be pregnant, I'm like, okay, I can yeah. understand that. I think that's fair. I, I don't think that, you know, some, there's plenty of, and I will say women, um, who yeah. do not desire pregnancy. And actually, you know, I, I'm an apologist, so I come at everything through um, – you know, like I, I look at different the way different worldviews respond and answer to certain things, right? So, from an atheistic perspective, for example, to say um, I've never I never want to be pregnant, it's not going to be a problem as long as for the atheist there's enough other people who are having babies. Yeah. In other words, they're okay with certain people not having babies because there's enough other people having babies that are helping our species to continue, right? So, so for me, I'm like, okay, like I, I can understand that she doesn't want to be pregnant. I can understand this idea that not not many, not all women feel the sense of wanting to care for a child and those kind of things. The, the the challenge that we run into though is that when you do become pregnant, right? So if you don't want to be pregnant, then you don't do the things that cause pregnancy. So in other words, if if pregnancy was spontaneous, like it just spontaneously happened in you, well then it would I could understand yeah. this whole abortion type thing in a whole different kind of a light. However, it doesn't spontaneously happen. Yeah. Like we yeah. actually do things to make it happen. So if you don't want to be pregnant, that's great. You want to maintain your your autonomy over this aspect of your life, that's great. Yeah. But once you do things that therefore now resound in an outcomes, now it does involve the society just as so many other things in society do. Yeah. And, and she her, she's interesting because when she says, I never wanted to be pregnant, she talks about the idea of being pregnant. She, obviously, she and other authors, if you read, like New York Times has done a series, by the way, uh, where they have had people come in and write editorials. And, and the way they talk about pregnancy is fascinating because it is every single one of them is pregnancy at its worst, right? Let, let's break down every horrible thing that can happen. And I agree with you. It's fair. 
to bring those things up. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, my wife was nauseated through three pregnancies mm-hmm. and she hated it, right? We, our, her our OBGYN had to tell her, look, pregnancy is not a weight loss program. Yeah. So we're going to have to find ways to get protein and calories into you. And so I'd get her milkshakes and I would sit there and shell peanuts for her yeah. all the time. We had to find things that she could eat. So there were aspects of pregnancy that were physically miserable for my yeah. wife. And, and progressively so. With each pregnancy, they got worse. And so, and, what she, and I think what she does well in presenting her case uh, is that she says, and I think this is a fair criticism. She says, oftentimes we talk about pregnancy as if, there is like this apartment inside women, right? And, and so this new life is growing independent of the functions of the yeah. woman's body mm-hmm. and that, that people think in these terms. Now, I don't know that that's true, but I do think it's a, it's a fair warning to say, I'm hearing it as if you're talking about this life growing and it had nothing to do with this. Before I give it back to you, I just want to say one of the, the most shocking moments for me as a man yeah. uh, was when my wife was pregnant with our first kid, we were, we were committed to the Bradley method. So we were going to have natural birth, right? And we, I mean, if you don't know anything about the Bradley method, these are like natural birth people on steroids. Like they're, they're, <laughs> they are committed, man. I mean, it's like a cult of how we're going to have our kid naturally. And when we first, the first time I went to the house of the woman who was doing the Bradley method teaching, she had this cross section of a woman who was almost nine months pregnant wow. up on a poster of it. And I have to admit at, at oh, 28 years old, it suddenly occurred to me why pregnant people were so uncomfortable. I was like, oh my gosh. Like every organ in that woman's body has been moved out of the way. I mean, I, and I, I, I was a victim of what she was saying. My understanding of pregnancy was such a, why do you have to pee all the time? Why are you so uncomfortable? I don't understand all that. And then I see the baby's head crushing her bladder yeah. and her intestines spread into different directions and organs displaced through, I'm like, my Gosh, <laughs> so so she's right in that sense to to understand and talk about pregnancy and what it does to women. We we do have to be honest about it. Can't just be the magic of it, right? Yeah. It can't just be pregnancy. Pregnancy so magical. It sure. wasn't magical for my wife when she was vomiting all the time. Sure, but you ask my wife, she'll say she loved. It. So I agree with what you're saying before. We, we're sep- we have, we can't separate consequences from the actions and the decisions that we make. But her, her stance on that radical autonomy is coming from that position of pregnancy is so intrusive, so invasive. And she, she grants sort of the ubiquity of it, right? Mm-hmm. It's ubiquitous. But at the same time, it's such a, a burden physically on the woman. I'm going to say woman. I can't. I just can't play yeah, the game. I know, she's playing. Yeah, I'm not going to do it. But she would say impregnatable person that they have to be free to rid right. themselves of this interference. Right. And, and I do think there's a bit a bit of unfairness, though, in her position because there's plenty of women that actually love being pregnant. Yeah. And it, and it, even if even in the uncomfort, they love the feeling of feeling the baby move. Yep. Um, they love just the whole experience, even if it's nauseous, even if, you know, like you said, all, you know, the organs are all over the place. I mean, all of that, some women actually are just feel so blessed by the whole yeah. thing. So there's a sense in which she's quite dogmatic about the whole pregnancy thing that it's it is so intrusive, it's so bad. Almost like you feel like, it, like like the comparison to virus, and I think she made some of these like um, kind of like invasive statements yeah. earlier um, in her article when she um, was just talking about how this involuntary kind of thing and and, and these burdens and all of this kind of stuff. But the reality is is for for many women they are just so blessed. Some of them have 
right? Multiple, like four, five, six, seven, eight, even. Yep. But even still, even if they have one, like they still just find the, the experience to be such an honor to be yeah. able to bring life into the world. So it's kind of, it. her stance is not necessarily the only one that people would hold. And I think that she's not leaving room for other people that actually don't think of pregnancy as, um, you know, an alien type thing, or even recognizing that there is beauty and even in the pain. Yeah. And, and Kate Greasley, who is a, I mentioned her earlier or, or I mentioned her a lot actually in my work. Cause I love Kate Greasley's work. She's a pro-choice legal scholar and, and philosopher uh, that she dismantled bodily autonomy arguments in her book, arguments about abortion just destroyed them uh, because she comes at it from a legal position. So I understand why they're trying to ramp up the aggressiveness of, of, of pregnancy because what Kate Greasley would say is in order for you if we grant the humanity of the unborn, in order for you to have the right to destroy their life, you have to have necessity and proportionality, which means that whatever it is that they're threatening, their death must be necessary as a resolution of it. And whatever it is that the disruption that they're causing is, the response to it must be proportional. And she says, abortion is not, meets neither one of those standards, right? It's not necessary in that the woman will live, right. however uncomfortable she is. Right. Mm -hmm. She will live through this. So we, we have, if, if it raises the level of life of the mother, that's a different discussion. Right. But however uncomfortable pregnancy is, granting everything that Charlotte Shane says and others say about how awful it is, however bad it is under normal conditions, it's not necessary to kill the child to resolve it. And the death of the child, the death of the fetus is, is not proportional to the harms it's causing, right? That you're, you're asking for it to pay for its life for these, even if we grant all of these discomforts. Exactly. And I'm willing to, but, and, and I want to add, my wife would be mad at me if I don't. When you said that about someone, I said all those negative things. She loved pregnancy. Yeah. I mean, she'll tell you, even with the nausea, even with all those things, she loved being pregnant. Uh, and, and, and a lot of the things that you mentioned there as well. Here's something I think is a lovely quote from her in Charlotte Shane's article that I, I find fascinating. The ability to conceive is an inherited state of being and is not synonymous with the desire to do so. There's never been a time when this wasn't true, and there probably never will be, but people capable of pregnancy have options to manage and react to their body's potential. Biology need not be destiny. Now, I think you covered some of that in your earlier response, right? Because where she says... They have options. Mm -hmm. Options that for most people we have to exercise prior right. to pregnancy, right? <laughs> right. Uh, in, in very rare cases, we're talking about a, a small percentage, very small, one to two percent. Is the option not been exercised on their part to participate fully in right. this, right? right. So, uh, but I think that's it. Her point is biology need not be destiny. And here's where one of the things that you and I, I br briefly discussed with you yesterday. It starts to become clear that there's a whole other worldview coming in here, like a whole other view of what it means to be a human being yeah. and our responsibility and duties to other generations. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting because when you say biology need, need not be destiny, there's aspects of that where actually that is somewhat true where actually your biology does actually determine certain things that happen to yeah. you. Certain people have certain have, are more inclined to get certain diseases yep. or have diabetes or are more inclined to get cancers and that like biology actually does play a part. But what makes the pregnancy thing different is 
um, once again, there isn't this, there isn't your body doesn't spontaneously create this baby on its own or these kind of things. So there is a sense in which there is also this denial of biology, which I hear a lot, or the, the I guess you could say the importance of biology yeah. and the impact on us all, which I hear a lot just across the board. Where we're always trying to find, we're some way trying to limit the bio, biological aspects and, yeah. and the importance in our lives. And I think that's that's problematic with what she's what she's getting at as well. Yeah, and you like like I think of when you were talking about it, I was thinking of like Carl Truman's work, uh, where he talks about this psychosexual view of yourself or yeah. or your psychological being. And and I talked about that actually at a a couple of universities in the fall where we were talking about the different ways you can understand what it means to be a human being. If you reject the idea that there's a mind and that there's spirit or anything like that, and you're just a biological, we're meat machines, right? Right. Well, then their biology need not be destiny is a ridiculous question. Right. Or a ridiculous statement, because of course it is. Right. That's all you are. Right. You just are biologi biologically what you are. Uh, it's, I think what's interesting there is how, what does she mean by destiny? Yeah. Right. I mean, that's one of the right. things I, I start to struggle with is because you're talking, we're talking, when you introduce that idea of, this psychological view of myself where I diminish the importance of my body altogether. Yeah. And all I am is what I either strive to be or believe myself to be or envision myself to be. Biology need not be destiny is a weird statement when we know in order for human beings to procreate at this point, yeah. that's just the way it happens. Right. And that's why I think this is once again, getting back to the autonomy thing where we still, we don't see ourselves as part of a community, a human race. We see ourselves yeah. as very, in, very individual, and so we see, um, like that, what I want is 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 of utmost importance, as opposed to how can I can how can I? And she even used the word sacrificing. We ask people to sacrifice themselves for the people. Well, we do that with the military all the time. The fact that she can sit here and write this article is because people have fought for this country. They've sacrificed themselves for others. It's actually part of what we do as a human society. Is we do oftentimes sacrifice ourselves knowing that we won't even reap the benefit in the case of somebody in the military, but recognizing that it that the importance of our larger humanity, let's say, is is important to us. And we value that. Yeah. We want to be a part of that process of growing it. And 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 our particular role may be to live to 80 and be a great scientist, or our particular role may be to die in battle at a young age, or our particular role might be to whatever. But the point is, we, as we see each other as part of a network, as part of a group, yeah. then I think it changes the way that we look at this this whole autonomy piece. And I think this is really, the, the autonomy piece is something I hear so much of as I speak more and more, because so many people want to establish their own rights. So it's very interesting that she titled this whole thing of the right to not be pregnant. In other words, yeah. this is a fundamental human right. Yes. Which is very interesting um, because I, there, there is a sense in which there is an arbitrariness to this right because this is a right that she feels should be human right. Um, so where does that come from? How do we know that this should be a, uh, a human right that somebody who is pregnant, let's say, um, should be able to still do up to birth, decide that they don't want to be pregnant? Um, yeah. But that's an interesting thing. But regardless, this idea of autonomy, this idea of feeling like I can, it's okay for me to live in my own little bubble, and that is a legitimate place to be because it's my right to be who I want and to, to, to engage people how I want. The reality is it's a very Western mindset, a very Western way of thinking, because when you go to other cultures, mm. you go to Eastern cultures, you think of, think of Asia, think of parts of Africa, think Middle East, right? It's very communal. So in mm. other words, in America and, you know, the Western Europe and these kind of things, we think I marry who I want. I can study what I want in school. I get the job that I want. I can live what I want. I can be what I want. In those cultures, it's like, no, you marry what benefit, who benefits the family. 
You get a job that brings the family honor. You study a degree that brings the family honor through the job that you're going to get, et cetera. In other words, they have a much better grasp of the communal interactive ways in which we all uh, we all impact each other yeah and and to me i think yeah of course there's going to be problems with that view of with with that eastern culture kind of mindset and i totally get that um but i do think when in this particular piece of it they've got a much better grasp on the fact that that bodily autonomy is somewhat of a delusion yeah in the sense of we actually can't just say well i should do whatever i want with my body. It's why we have an entire criminal justice system. It's why we have prisons and it's why yeah. we've got courts because we say to people, okay, if you want to do what you want with your body, we're going to d- determine what happens with the outcome. And it's the same thing here. Okay, if you want to go ahead and determine that you want to be sexually active, let's say it's a voluntary situation. We're not talking about rape and incest, those things right now. But we're talking about you choose to be sexually active. Then we, as, an, as a nation, recognizing that that outcome actually influences yeah. us all that is why we as a nation feel like we need to now weigh in on the outcome. And so sometimes when I hear so much of this autonomy thing, it's my right, I can do what I want. I'm like, we're not living in the right world here. Yeah. Because that baby could grow up to be my future doctor or a teacher of somebody that I know or a construction worker of a road that I drive on, whatever. In other words, your decision does impact me. Yeah. Because I won't cross paths with that person now. And then and we were, I was... And a lot of the research, you feel like you, you, you realize what's going on as far as the, the rejection of having children and the, the, all over the world, not just in the United States, but in, in, mo- in many countries around the world, there, there is no replacement generation, right? Yes. I mean, this, this idea that as we, gr- we grow in this idea that the world exists for me to pursue myself in it as an individual, we are losing our relationship to generations. Yeah. And, and I've talked about this in other forms, our, our obligation is due to the generations ahead of us yep. that, that came before us, that made our world possible, and the, the responsibility duty to the next generation after us. Right. That they, they will replace, my kids will replace me. They are here yeah. to take my place. Right. I will live, I will die. Hopefully they will have kids and they will keep going on that way. And that's how we, we transmit important information to the next generation. I love that piece though about how it particularly Western, particularly even most you see in the United States, that view of autonomy. Mary, Marion Glendon from Harvard University had a book called Rights Talk. And in there she says, that, you know, American talk, Americans talk of rights in a way that's impoverished mm-hmm. because they, they recognize rights claims as a way to claim what they want or to satisfy desires. Right. But they don't understand that every right has accompanying obligations and duties to the community. Yes. And and everything that we do, we have a responsibility and duty that that goes both to us as we claim the right and for others to have to recognize that right. And before we started this, one of the things I was talking about is that obviously the, the right to life is the preeminent life. Yeah. I mean, the, the right through which all other rights will be understood. So in her case, and I think that's one of the, what I mentioned a second ago, And what I see in all of them, in order for them to try to override the right to life, they are trying to characterize pregnancy as something, they use terms, invasive, debilitating, hazardous, uh, deadly. It's it's, it's crazy. I was reading one of the articles and I was thinking, we can play this game with almost anything. I could describe my drive from my house to this place in the most harrowing (laughs) ways, right? I, I was... I was being propelled forth at dangerous speeds uh, by a, a, a you know a, a engine run by an explosive gas, 
And the only thing separating me from the dangers of the world are painted lines on the ground. And all around me are, are like pieces of glass where cars have been wrecked previously. I mean, anything. Yep. We could play this game with anything that we do. Anything. Any Drinking water and yep. the dangers it represents, yep. right? Yep. Any game you want to play, we yep. could find something. So I think it's important to say, okay, like, I get it. You're right. Pregnancy is a lot. <laughs> right? I, let's, I get it. Right. But it is, it just so happens also to be the way that every single human being throughout human yeah. history has come into existence. Right. So let's not go too crazy. Let's not go too crazy. Yeah. Right. I, I'm glad you brought this up because <laughs> there, there was a part of me as I'm reading this, I'm like, wow, this is, with all due respect to her, this is completely overdramatic yeah. at this point. So when, when she wrote words like, yeah, pregnancy is protracted, invasion, debilitation, and deadly hazard. Hold on a second, people, guys. Let's just take a break. Okay? Let's just take a break. We are talking about a baby. Yeah. We are not talking about a virus, which literally, when it comes to your body, injects, injects its DNA into your cells and tries to change your cells around so it now produces what the virus wants. Okay, that's invasive, yeah. right? Like, I literally had to go to the dictionary. I'm like, maybe I don't understand invasion. So let me, let me go ahead. And so I looked up what invasion, some dictionary definitions of invasion. So here are some dictionary definitions of invasion. An act of entering, like an enemy. Entrance of harmful, thing, harmful things like disease, entrance as if to take possession, and infringement by intrusion. So this is like forceful, I'm trying to take you yeah. over, I'm trying to harm you, I'm trying to possess you. I mean, it's like, wait a minute, we're, we're just talking about a baby. Yeah, your mom did this. Yeah. <laughs> right? So I mean, every like, other your, your mom did this. It's, it's all right. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And, and, <laughs> I, and as I'm reading this, I am blown away because when then she was debilitation, which is an act of making a person weak or disabled. Yeah. It's like, with all due respect to like, like we need to be careful because there are some people who actually do have legitimate debilitating conditions. Yes. Yes. You know, cerebral palsy, maybe they've developed Parkinson's. There are things that actually cause debilitation. Yeah. And when we're talking about a baby, we are not talking about the same thing here. And I think it's disrespectful to those that actually have serious debilitating kind of things. And deadly hazard, I'm not even going to bother going there with her with that because that just seems so extreme. So it's interesting as I read this, because we're talking about invasion, debilitation, deadly hazard. Well, you know what's a deadly hazard? Eating sushi. You yeah. can eat some kind of raw thing, get a bacteria, and boom, you're dead. There's things, there's deadly hazards all the time. Yeah. We get in our car every day, and we do because we have obligations. We have a place that we need to go, whatever. We are living in a world in which there's deadly hazards all the time. Yeah. And now we're just talking about a baby. I, I think what's blowing my mind with this whole thing is how did we go from saying, hey, I don't want to have a baby, to a baby is this invasive, debilitating, deadly hazard. We have swung so far yeah. that just blows my mind. Like it's like our whole mentality of these things is so warped now that we just see it as a toxic, disgusting yeah. thing. But at the end of the day, guys, this is just life. This yeah. is human life. It's it's just supposed to be. In, it's supposed to be something that's beautiful and enjoyable. And we have turned ourselves so against it that we use these kind of strong words. I just was blown away, and I just felt like it was so overly dramatic. Oh yeah, it, it was. <laughs> but it has to. Things. That's the point. It ha if you're talking about autonomy, going back to Kate Grizzly, in order for there to be a proportionality or necessity, the only way for you to get there is to exaggerate pregnancy to the point. Because again, yes. that's what I keep. I was reading. I was like, I get it. I get it. And one of the one of the things I read was a woman talking about seeing the placenta growing into the in, into the woman and and its tentacles reaching out like a hungry wolf to sap her of her blood as it saps into her bloodstream. I was like, okay, I get that, man. And it's a it is a picture that you paint with words, right? Yeah. Uh, but again, 
it's just the way we come into existence. I mean, it it, it is everywhere, all the time, all around us. And so we have to, I, I, I think, appreciating pregnancy and turning it into a pathology, that's a dangerous thing. And that's what there's, that's what a lot of the language they're doing is. It's let's take pregnancy, the means by which every human being who has ever existed came into existence and talk about it as if it were an illness, yes, as if it was something to be cured or dealt with. Right. And that's why I said we're getting into a different view of humanity in order to embrace that raw autonomy. Yes. We're, we're, you're, you're bringing in, I think Frank Beckwith talks about this a lot when he talks about bodily autonomy arguments. He says you're pirating in a worldview without arguing for it or defending it. Yeah. You're trying to sneak it in the back door, this idea that we are these radically autonomous individuals who have yes. freedom to do whatever exactly. we want without dealing with the consequences. Right. Uh, and, and clearly, one of the things I wanted to talk about, uh, there's two more things I, w- I really want to talk about before we get done. One of them was the idea that she and others see any imposition on this view as religious infringement. Yeah, like, which is interesting. Yeah, like the only reason you don't think pregnancy is the most harrowing experience on earth, they ought to be free to kill, to kill their children to avoid, is because you believe in a, a you know, right. sky god. Right. Leave your sky god out of my beliefs or right. whatever. It's like, right. As if there's no atheists who don't hold yeah. to any religion. There's no atheist who wants to get pregnant and there's yeah. no atheists who are pro-life. That's just nonsense. Yeah. That's not true at all. I know, I know, I know of atheists that are pro-life. This is just religion, right? It's just you trying to, and yeah, I know, I mean, I've talked to, I've trained, I've worked with, I've worked alongside atheists, pro-life, secular pro-life, people who fight for this from the other side. So, and when you say, look, I've had one, I remember one of them talking to me on the other side of this saying, why should you have the right to force your religion? Well, two things. Number one, my religious beliefs don't have to be withheld from public square. I am not required to argue like I'm not a Christian. Right. That that's ridiculous. Yeah. If I can convince you that my Christian beliefs on this particular issue are best for society, even if you don't believe my Christian beliefs, then I'm free to do so. Right. And and the idea that your view should be allowed to be argued in the public sector, but as a Christian, I'm supposed to hold back, it's just nonsense. Right. It's ridiculous. You don't tell at this point still the majority of people around us who identify in some form or another as Christian whether we agree they're orthodox or not, they're still identifying with themselves with Christian beliefs. You don't tell all of them you can't bring those to the public sector exactly. discussion because we think secular views are, are superior to your Christian views. Right. And, and you're so selective about when you do it, right? right. I thought one of the things that was really interested was uh, interesting to me was uh, not just Bono, how much they love Bono, who was driven <laughs> by Christian ethics. But I, I one time saw an interview with George Clooney when he was working in the Sudan. Right when he 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 did major efforts to to try to help and relieve pressures going on in Sudan, and one of the television hosts that he was talking to started mocking Christians, and he said, "No, no, 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 don't don't do that." He said, "When I needed help, they were the ones that were there." He's like, "I I might not agree with them, but you're not going to sit here and make fun of them, because when we needed help in the Sudan, it was the Christians that showed up." And so that's one of the things that would point out when people bring up that leave your religion at home things. You want me to leave my religion at home when I talk about abortion, but you don't when we talk about AIDS relief in Africa. You don't when we talk about helping the immigration in Sudan. I mean, all these other places, you're thrilled when we show up. Right. When, when um, oh my gosh, well, it was Ebola. Yeah. I mean, when Ebola hit and Christian doctors were yeah. flocking, were, were going to those places and dying yeah. to try to save those people. Nobody had any problem with right. our faith driving us to do things right. there. And, and from, from her perspective, that would seem foolish because 
you, you're doing the self-sacrificing thing for somebody else yeah. when you do sure. that, right? That so so that would almost seem like a foolish thing to do, but it's it's actually because the doctors see human life as valuable, and that's all ultimately what this comes down to is you know what is human life valuable, and if and if and it's easy once we once we you know lower the the value of human life, it's easy for us to abuse it, right? It's e- why it's easy for us to jump on a bed, but not to jump on a human, right? Because a bed doesn't have value, so we don't have any issue jumping on it and and harming harming it. You could say. Yeah. But and so yeah and so I think what you see when when you saw the doctors doing that and getting sick and dying is they're 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 acknowledging that there's value in life and so it actually is not to do with yeah sure religious people oftentimes are the ones who attribute value to human life for the simple reason that a non-religious person will just look at humans as uh, DNA propagating machines we're just we, you know we're just remnants of stardust you know one day we're here the next day we're not we're just gonna be gone so it doesn't really matter yeah you know what we do it doesn't matter if we find the cure for cancer i mean yeah it helps people around us but we're ultimately all going to be dead there's no inherent value yeah. in life so so i understand that you know that 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 people would say well that's why religious people have the position they do on abortion but that it's because they have a value to life and i get that other belief systems don't have that um so but i but i would be cautious to say that it's only religious people that see life as valuable yes. yeah. and that's where she's going to make that mistake and, and, and to say that because it's a religious belief that we shouldn't be trying to interject it in her life, because I believe it's a religious, out of my commitments to Christ, I believe it's wrong to kill another human. I was not always a Christian though. And I, I, you know, I struggled with that when I wasn't a Christian. I mentioned that earlier when I wasn't a Christian, I struggled with the idea of right and wrong. And I've, I've wrestled with it since then. Uh, because once I became a Christian, I had to, to understand what I meant when I said something was wrong. So I was not one of those Christian or non-Christians. I was not an atheist that would have said, oh, objective moral values exist. I'm just an atheist. I didn't think they did. I thought, I thought there was no such thing as objective right and wrong. But now that I'm on this side of things and you look at the world, one of the things I want to warn the people of to say Christians get out of all of it is you don't want us out of all of it. Yeah. I mean, you, I promise you, you want mm-hmm. us, you want people yeah. fighting for the value of human life. You want us watching what's going on. One of the funniest things I ever saw on a less serious note on this was when, um, what's his name? Bill Nye, the science guy, oh, did some show guy. on Netflix, I think it was, and it was just horrible. It was, ju- it was just awful. And he had some dance routine song that he had someone singing about sex and, and casual sex, and, 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 all, and it, was, oh it was horrifying. And the first comment I saw under it in the YouTube was, could somebody call the Christians and tell them we're sorry we were wrong because this is not right. Oh my it, was, it, was, it was an atheist. Like, like, I don't agree with them, but they may have been right about this one. So let's get them <laughs> back in here. Let's rethink what we're doing, uh, which I thought was hysterical. It's like that we got to get, we got to get them back. Yeah. You know, we, we, we send them off too soon. This yeah. is getting out of control fast. Yeah. All right. The, the last thing I do want to touch on as we get to this view they're arguing for a different view of humanity, as we've mentioned it a couple of times. She outright lays blame on the pro-life community for trying to make pregnancy all about women, which is, for somebody who does not dip his toe into these kind of discussions very much, <laughs> because it's just of no interest to me. We talked about this at breakfast that day where I said, all I care about is love your neighbors yourself. That's the lens by which I understand the world. How can I do that? How can I pursue that? When, when are we violating that as a human being? And so this doesn't enter my, but when, when this woman is arguing and she can't even stay consistent in her own article, right? She, she brings up women all the time in her own article. But when she makes this statement that it's the pro-life people who want to make pregnancy about women, like, 
No, it's just the world and the way it works that makes this about women. Versus right? impregnable people. Yeah, versus yeah. impregnable people, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I've, I've spent my life on campuses being told this is a women's issue. I'm just responding to what the other side right. has told me. Right. And, and now somebody's Women's like, no, right to choose all. These yeah. Things. And who are you to come and talk about it? Yep. You're just a man. And now suddenly it's impregnatable people and it's not women. And it's my fault. Like, yeah. I, like it's our fault. If we believe that the pro-life position and the women are the only people who get pregnant. It's like, okay, this is, you just believe something about the world that I don't believe. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's interesting to me because this, is, this is one area where I feel like the science community is actually really helpful. And for whatever reason, because of the fact that we, Getting back to this autonomy, you want to be able to do whatever we want with ourselves. You want to be able to, you know, uh, just have freedom of actions and words, these kind of things. We, we like the science community when it supports us, and we don't like them when it doesn't support yeah. us. And what's really interesting to be out, this impregnable people, no, you actually not, you cannot be male and give birth to a child. Like, that's just actually not how it works from a biological perspective. And I think part of our challenge is, is we think of, <clears throat> excuse me, we think of, male and female in terms of XX and XY, Yeah. right? And so we think females are XX, males are XY, and that's true, but that's true in, that's true in humans. But either way, XX and XY is actually not how the scientific community um, determines whether or not um, you are male or female, which is interesting because I think that's something that many of us have, you know, just gotten wrong in the past just by, by saying. They actually have, the, when the scientific community looks at how do we determine male or female, they don't just look at how do we determine it with humans, they want a consistent scale across the board, from animals and um, uh, amphibians and, and humans and whatever. They, they need a, yeah. a, a scale that's going to be equal. So they can't use XX and XY because that's very specific to humans. If you look at birds, birds use ZZ and ZW chromosomes, right? So ZZ is a male bird and ZW is a female bird. So, so XY doesn't apply there when you look at crocodiles. Um, they use body temperatures. If it's 34 degrees Celsius, it's a male. If it's 30 degrees Celsius, then it's going to be a female. So, so there isn't a consistency there. You can't use XX and XY to determine male or female. So scientists go on a deeper level, and they look at what's called your gametes. And they basically look at you have either one of one of two different reproductive um, a gametes. So you either have a large one, which is an egg, or you have a small one, which is sperm. And that is how they determine whether you're male or female. Okay. And so that's going to be consistent whether you're a human, mm -hmm. whether you're a mammal, whether you're whatever. Is it the female has an egg, the male has uh, has sperm. And so part of the challenge that we have in our culture is we just we think of, of, of male or female in terms of our genitalia, which actually isn't actually the correct way to do that because we do know that there are people who are what's called intersex or differences in sexual disorders yeah. where they actually may have maybe a, a partial genitalia of one thing, or sometimes they could even have partial of both. But regardless, and so we look at them and we say, therefore, look, they've got partial female, partial male, therefore they're kind of an in-between. But wrong, they're not an in-between of male and female. They are, because that is not how we determine male or female. We determine male or female based on our gametes. So regardless of the genitalia somebody has, you still have to go deeper and say, well, do they produce egg or do they produce sperm? Okay. And so ultimately... Only people who can produce eggs are females. If the large gametes are females. So regardless of your actual your genitalia or certain characteristics, that is actually how we determine it. So when we say that, you know, well, impregnable people, that is only ever women. That's only people who carry an egg. Yeah. That's it. The, egg, the gamete of an egg. So you, there is no fluidity with this stuff. And it blows my mind how we disregard the scientific community on this because this is like, 
basic human reproduction here. Yeah, yeah. And this is how they have looked at things. But when it doesn't fit with the mold that we want, then we then we we find ways to alter and 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 you know make it we just disregard certain things. So that's why you actually even in our culture today you'll see a lot of people in the scientific community speaking up against some of this impregnable people. That doesn't make any sense. Like a woman has a yeah, large gamete, she has an egg, and the male has a small, tiny, which is a sperm. And so that's really what, what is important. So when she says impregnable people, I don't really understand. I, I just think she's pushing aside the facts to fit what she wants it to say. Well, and there's also a, a, an accusation there in the way that she says it's part of a larger cultural war. It right? is. For her, right? I mean, she it says it's, it's, this, is, this isn't just you saying I can't get an abortion. This is you hating trans people. This is you being anti-LGBTQ. This is all of it all at once. And by right. by being against, and you see this a lot in social media, and, and I see it on both sides. And it's one of the things I hate about social media. I mean, I for the most part, I hate social media. It's it's interesting that I I'm I feel like making the podcast. I remember years and years ago reading Jean-Paul Sartre where he said, you know, I know life is meaningless, but I and that means my writing is meaningless, but I can't stop writing. Yeah. I mean, it was he's like, yeah. I, I know none of it matters, but I can't stop yeah. doing it. And I feel almost that way about social media. It's like, I hate it, but I have to engage it because yeah. that's just the world that we live in. And one of the things you see in social media and we see in these, especially when you get the efforts to cancel, ostracize, uh, accountability, all of those things that they want to use, is that when they, they find somebody that they believe is an enemy of them, they try to make them an enemy of everyone. Yeah. Right. And so it, it's it's not enough here to say that because I know progressive Christians are not progress. I mean, I know progressive atheists who are pro-life who couldn't give a rip about getting into the idea of the trans movement or LGBTQ. Exactly. I mean, members of the LGBTQ movement who are pro-life. I mean, yes. they're not, but this, by their I'm very nature, they're saying, if you are in this game that you're playing, saying that you can control women's decisions, you are part of the larger army against all of these things. And so, and therefore we're trying to, we're trying to bring the, to bear the right. whole full weight of the cultural right. war. Exactly. Cause this cultural, cause that's what they're, they're assuming that it's only the right wing Christians yeah. that would hold these views that women are the ones who are pregnant. And that's, and it's like, no, that's what I'm saying. It's actually, when you, when you study human reproduction, the biologists would recognize this as well. This has nothing to do with Christianity. It has to do with science. Yeah. yeah. And so to say these kind of statements, once again, it is, it's, it's going along with the cultural stigma. It's going along with the cultural views. And, and, but it's actually not reality. It's actually and, not true. And it's trying to call, like, call forth the whole weight of the culture war. Yeah. To fight. To fight this, as opposed to taking this one issue and saying, let's have a discussion about this one thing. Yes, right? exactly. Let, let's just set everything else aside for a moment. Let's say I don't have any interest in any of the other stuff. Should you be allowed to ch destroy your offspring before they're born? That's the discussion right. I want to have right now. And all of those other things, let's table for a moment. Right. Because and or, and and then let's act. Let's not pretend that pregnancy is what you want me to believe it is, right? right. Let's remember that it is just the means by which all human beings have ever existed have come into existence. Yeah. Uh, as and I don't mean that trivially when I said remember your mom did this. I mean because right. I love my mom, but I don't think my mom's this great hero that went through like yeah. war to bring birth you know, to bring me into the world. She was pregnant. She had pregnancy issues like all other people do on some level or another. And then I was born. And I know that that's a lot, but it's not worth killing other people over, mm -hmm. right? It's, it wasn't that invasive, intrusive, awful thing. So I still think at the end of the day, uh, it's, as much as they're trying to pirate in other cultural things, other worldviews, other ideas of what it means to be a human, 
that when I hear this extreme version of it that says, let's stop messing around and let's just get to the brass tacks of it. I can do whatever I want with my body when it's something that's intrusive as pregnancy is what yeah. we're discussing. I think at that point, then the response is you have still failed in my mind to meet the standards set by Kate Greasley, one of your own people, yeah. one of your own pro, pro-choice people who said you need necessity and you need proportionality and you have neither one of those. And if you want to kill somebody that you recognize as a human life, then it's justifiable homicide by definition, because yeah. that's what she says. There's no other thing to call it, but that. Yeah. And if it's not, if that's not what you're arguing, if you're just arguing they're not human and we don't owe them any moral duty and obligations, then stop bringing up how terrible pregnancy is anyway. It doesn't matter. You just think they don't matter at all. Right. But if you want to play this game that pregnancy is the worst thing that ever happened and that we have to be able to kill other human lives to protect ourselves from right. it, then you have to play the, the game the way it's played. Yeah. You lack necessity. You lack proportionality. I mean, I don't mean to be you know, insensitive, but to you know, quote Willy Wonka, you lose. You lose. Good day, sir. Yep. yep. There's many worse things that could happen to us than to bring life into the world. Yeah. And at the end of the day, that's why we have to keep this in. We have yep. to keep this in perspective. It is not about religious people versus non-religious. It's not about right wing versus left wing. It's not about Christians versus the world. We don't need to create these unnecessary battles and tensions and divisiveness. Yes. The question is, is it possible for us to, to experience something that we don't want to happen as beautiful? That's the ultimate yes. question. Something that we don't want to happen, can we still see it beautiful? And you'll see many people who feel like, I don't. I, don't, I have a friend who got pregnant, married, got pregnant, did not, she was not happy about being pregnant. She didn't want to be pregnant. She was so frustrated about it. She didn't want any more kids. And then that little boy was born, and she's just absolutely in love with him. Yep. You know? And I knew as soon as she saw him, she'd be fine. And it was as soon as she saw him, she'd be fine. And she even jokes about now. She was like, man, I just, I was so upset when I was pregnant, and now I'm just in love with him. Is it possible for us to find beauty in something that we don't necessarily want because we recognize that maybe we just aren't there yet, but maybe we will be there, but yep. we can see it as life and as good. That's perfect. And I'll, I'll end it on this, going back to what you said about community earlier. One of the things I find disheartening when we talk about this with people who argue for the other side is that you miss the idea that your community can change you. And when you introduce a child into your life, it's a new member of your community. And as as for many of us who have been through this as parents, we understand that all of your priorities are reordered and things that you thought were important yeah. are just gone and struggles that, look, I've, I've worked in ministry my entire adult life. Go ask my kids what it's like to grow up in a ministry family in one of the richest places in the United States. It's not great. We ain't rich, man. I mean, my house is 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 what it is and my family loves it and we're happy in it. But Every one of them will tell us that because of the way God has designed our lives, we have been able to spend more time together as a family than almost any other people we know. And when I leave this earth, that's all I care about. Yeah. So thank you so much, Alicia, yeah, for coming for having on. thanks for me. Absolutely. I appreciate you taking the time to bring me on and hear me out. Yeah, absolutely. I have more. If you have stuff that, too, feel free to call me anytime and say, <laughs> I, I have three. I have, a, I'm gonna get, I have another thing we're going to do called three things where you have the you can come on and say, these are three things about this issue that I think are important for people to know yeah. and just present your case. And then okay. I, will, I, will, I will open it. You're free to come anytime you want. Thank you so much for joining us for the first episode back for Merely Human, Human Things Podcast 2.0. If you want more of this content, please go to our website, merelyhumanministries.org, and feel free to make a donation. We appreciate you guys. God bless.